Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good? Sleepy? Good? I think there was like a ray of sunshine coming out this morning, so hopefully that energizes you as you come into church and as we get to worship together. Yeah, such a privilege to be able to do that again in this season, weekly just coming together as a church family and just reminding ourselves why we do all of this. Why are we still here? What are we on mission for? So yeah, thank you so much for joining us here this morning. If you're new, uh, my name is Andy. I have the privilege of, of leading the church amongst the eldership team. And just, yeah, what an amazing season it is to step into 2023 with you and just asking God to do what he's got for us to do in, in this season. How many of you at your connect groups this week were challenged by, by Paul's message last week? couple. Oh, Paul, you need to preach a bit more convictingly, man. It's just, no, just kidding. I know. We're Canadians. We don't like to put up our hands when we're asked questions. That's fine. But uh, I managed to, to get out to one of the groups this week and yeah, just chewing on what it meant to take up your cross and follow Christ was a deep, deep work and, and sort of like starting out this series on becoming like Christ in such a way that what does it mean to deny ourselves? What does it mean to take up that cross like Jesus did? What does it mean to do it on a daily basis? And and go forward and follow Jesus into what he's got for us. Again, as well, if you're new, if you haven't seen the beginning of this series, we're asking ourselves is what is it like to become like Jesus? We see in a couple points in scripture that we, the final destination for believers who call themselves Christians is not just going to be with Jesus in heaven or, or, or being born again, it's becoming like Christ. We are going to be conformed into his image. And we as a church are saying, we want to actually be conformed into the image of Jesus now. Our city needs it. Our people need it. We need it. We were made before the fall, before darkness and brokenness came into the world to actually be image bearers. And we are image bearers, but we are called to a closer image bearing to what it, what it means to be Christians and to follow Christ. And today we get to advance that message again. Are we going to do another hard scripture? I think we'll do TikTok. So we'll do, uh, we'll, we'll do Paul does a hard one, then I do an easy one, then another person does a hard one, Wes after me. Good job. Uh, good luck, rather. Um, no, today we are going to be turning to Matthew 5. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, open them up and turn to Matthew 5. We're going to be going into a sermon that Jesus spoke to a great multitude. Maybe it was a sermon that he spoke multiple times, sort of as you know, politicians travel around and they have these stump speeches. It might have been one of those. This is the common uh, preaching of Jesus that he did quite often. Um, and we're going to be jumping forward to the section on loving our enemies. So if I said it was an easy one, actually, I think it's an easy one to understand it's a hard one to do. Let me open up my notes here and let's pray before we open the word of God. Lord God, we just thank you that we get to open up the scriptures here this morning. Lord, thank you that you haven't left us as, as orphans. You didn't, you didn't leave your words with us in the form of the Bible, Lord God, and then go away and left, leave us empty-handed apart from that. You have sent your Holy Spirit. It says that your word is living and active as well. And we know that we have everything that we need today to follow after your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord God, as we, as we hear these words, as we look to Scripture, as we look to, to see who was the Son of God and what was He like, Lord, we just pray that you would open our hearts and help us become like your Son. 
Amen. So listening to someone also preach on similar topic to where, where Paul was last week, and uh, a guy by the name of Sinclair Ferguson, just preaching on the same part, he said, to take up the cross and follow our Lord Jesus Christ as his disciples means that we are called to a lifestyle that is so different from this world's that its only possible explanation is that it's supernatural and divine. Let me say that again, the, the scriptures that we're going to be opening in these series, the call to follow Christ as his disciples and be like him, the only way that we can do that and the only possible explanation for it is that there is something supernatural happening in our lives, there is something divine happening in our lives. If you want to follow the teachings of Jesus in your own strength, what is going to happen to you? Nothing. Nothing. Maybe Maybe nothing. Maybe you're going to try, and then, but you're ultimately going to fail to live up to that expectation. And indeed, we can only live up to the expectation of being like Christ. One day we're going to stand before the Lord God, and we are going to be clothed in Christ, in his likeness, righteous, and standing in God's mercy of his son coming and giving himself for us. The only possible explanation for us to step into these things is that something is supernatural, something is divine happening here. And these passages, as we look to them, you know, the, the let him deny himself, let him take up his cross and follow me. We can be so overly familiar with these passages sometimes. They're the ones that we hear time and time again. And sometimes we're so overly familiar with them that we let them wash over ourselves, that we, we just think that we understand what Jesus is saying in these, in, in these parts, but we don't follow it through to the application, or we, we relegate it to a Sunday school teaching. But in these series, it might seem like very simple things that we are saying, but we divinely want to go back to the simple things that Jesus has said, because they are the very things that are going to change the world. Two points back off of, of Paul's preach, but we realize the difference between, and I know, you know, in the conversations this week at Connect Groups, we, we realize the difference between being authentic disciples of Christ, or are we just fans of Christ? And we realized the just frank nature of this, that the utter impossibility of living like his disciples, unless that new created being exists with us. To do it in our own strength is impossible. Jesus had a disciple who was doing things in his own strength. Do you know what his name was? His name was Judas. And he ultimately heard Jesus. He ultimately did life with Jesus. He went out as, as a part of the 72 and they saw massive things happen in the spiritual realm and, and a, an amazing advancement of the kingdom. But ultimately, he didn't have that, that, that wanting to be with Jesus of loving him first that Paul reminded us at the beginning of his message last week, that unless we start with a revelation in love of who Jesus is, all that what we're saying here this morning is impossible and useless and will just lead us into religion instead of the fruitfulness that God has called us to. So as we open up the scriptures, should we remember first that we need to love Christ first? That we may not be like the disciple who just followed his words, who just tried to implement his teaching, and then for his own explanation just, just saw that this is impossible, this is a fraud, I'm going to go another way. These are hard passages of Jesus. And in our flesh, we run from them, and it's only in the embrace of the Father and the empowering of the Holy Spirit that we can run to them. Is that right, church? Only in his embrace can we run to them. So, Lord God, we just pray that you would speak during this time. So, 
Let's open our Bibles and, and let's see again the passage that we are all too familiar with sometimes. But we again ask ourselves, what does it mean to follow Christ in this way? Matthew 5 from verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rains on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the German disciple of Jesus who was growing up as as clergy in Germany before World War II, who indeed actually moved to the States and then went back to Germany when he saw the German church suffering under Hitler, said that this was the supreme command of Christ. I love that. The supreme command to love your enemies. And at the beginning there in verse 543, we see something that we recognize and that we both don't recognize, don't we? Matthew 5.43, the very beginning says, You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It's an interesting one, right? Because if, if you know your Bibles, perhaps you're going through your, your yearly Bible reading, perhaps, and you'll end up in Leviticus soon. In Leviticus 19, it tells us that we are supposed to love our neighbors. But interestingly, when Jesus says, You have heard it said... He is quoting a saying that is happening amongst his people, happening amongst the Jews at the time, that you've heard it said, love your neighbor. And the rabbis of the time, the teachers of the time, all throughout Jewish history, maybe they've been building to this point where they've added on to the end and hate your enemy. Jesus says, you've heard it said, you've heard a bit of the Bible, but we've also added a bit at the end. And it's the human reaction if you know anything about the Jews at this time, they were under Roman oppression very at that point. But over the course of Jewish history, for about 600 years up until that point, they had been under the boot of an enemy. They had been at the mercy of another nation state. From Assyria, from Babylon, from Persia, from Greece, from Egypt, the Jewish people knew what it was like to have an enemy. And in indeed, in their wiggling around, in their hearing God's word and instruction, they had added on, love your neighbor. They had added on to love your neighbor, hate your enemy as well. And I want to say the challenge to us here this morning is that a love your, love your neighbor is quite an easy thing to follow. And then Jesus qualifies it later in Scripture saying who our neighbors are. The Good Samaritan, if you remember that. Everyone's our neighbor who we can do good to. But if you realize that when opposition comes, we quickly, we, we quickly want to, in our human flesh, qualify the loving commands of Christ, saying that actually I only want to apply them to this select group of people. And indeed, if you look at what the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes understood who their neighbors to be, they basically understood it to be who they liked, who was at their level, who was in the same economic class, who was their very neighbors around them. 
But Jesus, we know, explodes that teaching into everybody and everything. And we know that this command as well is also the default command of our society. Love your neighbors and hate your enemies. It's, it's the way our world operates. And in different alliances, in different echo chambers, we see these sort of remnant mentalities that are saying we're the core people left. We're going to just love our little core of people and we're going to hate the people outside of our core because God has called us or we're called to this thing. We see that as nations wage war against each other. And Jesus reminds us, well, even the world operates like this, of loving your enemy. Sorry, opposite. That's the end. Of loving your neighbor and hating your enemy. Jesus says in verse 46, he says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Jesus is saying there's no reward for that easy love where you just love the person who gives the thing that you want. Do not even the tax collectors do the same. People who were Jewish people who were operating under the Roman rule to steal and over-collect taxes and oppress the people. And if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the people outside the gospel or the people outside the Jewish nation do the same? You see, in that understanding of Leviticus 19, they have put their own qualification onto the end of it. I'm going to love these people, and I'm going to hate those people. And they had forgotten the rest of the counsel of God's word. In Proverbs 24, 17, it says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. And after that, in 25, 21, it says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. They had forgotten the instruction and the counsel of God. And we know that hate produces hate, that violence produces violence, that reviling produces that reviling again. And Jesus came to instruct his people once more on what it would take to escape this brutal cycle of people hating one another. Doesn't it seem, I, I don't know, it's hard to know if humanity is, is changing or just the resources that we have are changing sometimes. I think in my understanding of the brokenness of our human nature, I've come to understand that actually we're, we're still broken like we were at the fall. We were still broken like we were 200 years ago or 300 years ago or six, you know, thousands of years ago or whatever time you want to go. It's just the tools that we have to flesh out that brokenness change. Do you ever go on Twitter? You see the opposite instruction to this teaching. I think Elon Musk, I follow him on Twitter because he now owns Twitter and I, I don't know, so I'll probably unfollow him in a little bit. But he said, to paraphrase one of his tweets last Sunday, he said, you know, to be on, to be on Instagram is to be depressed, but to be on Twitter is to be angry. That's what he said about his own platform. It's like, oh, isn't this marvelousness that, you know, the, the human nature is as broken as it was 300 years ago before we had these methods of communication. But just in the closeness of our conversations, we now get to experience anger and divisiveness on Twitter as different factions argue back and forth in 140 or 280 characters or whatever it is now. We see this brokenness. How do we escape? And again, in verse 44... Saving that application until the end, Jesus gives his people two things to follow. So you've heard it said, hate. You've heard it said, love the people who are easy to love and hate the people who are easy to hate. 
But Matthew 5.44 says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is a teaching that the world knows. In fact, this is probably one of the very most famous teachings of Jesus that you know, the secular world would like to emulate as well. If, if people know who Jesus is and if they like him a little bit, they probably point to this very scripture saying, yeah, that was a really good thing that Jesus said there. He tells us to pray for those who persecute us and love people who we would normally call our enemies. Prayer can take many forms. We don't think that Jesus is saying, pray for your enemies that they get hit by a bus or that they fall down a well, or that something else bad happens to them. We can presume by Jesus' stance on this whole thing of loving the command coming first, that, that is the, it's an intercessory prayer for, for their benefit. Again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was figuring out what it meant to be a Christian under German rule in the 1940s, says, through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. The man who said that wound up in a concentration camp, ultimately, I think, hung before the end of the war was at hand. Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew what it was like the challenging words of Christ for a, for, for a group of people who are standing in opposition to, to the rule of the day. Pray, plead his case, go for him before God. And the word love used by Jesus in the very previous command before that, love your enemies, was the word love agape. We've, we've got one word for love in the human language, it's love. And it can mean I love my breakfast, I love my wife, I love my newborn baby, or I love that sitcom or anything like that. But agape love, to quote M.S. Mills, if you've got it up there, Dan, love is agape. And this thing of agape love, the purest, it's the highest form of love that man can imagine. It is a wholesome, beneficial love, which is not at all self-seeking. So much of our culture describes love as, as what we can get. But this kind of love that Jesus is talking about here is what we can give to others. It's a perfect reflection. Sorry, it's a reflection of perfect, divine, selfless love that God and the Father, that God the Father and God the Son display. We are called to pray and we are called to love people with a beneficial love. There's lots of things that this love is not. This love is not allowing for abuse to happen. In Isaiah 1, 17, I was just in it this morning and added it here, but Isaiah prophesying for the Lord, it says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Jesus was not bringing something before his disciples that was just lay down the righteousness of God, but he was saying, love your abusers in such a way that they become closer to me. And we realize in this application of love that there's a difference between forgiveness and trust. Many of us perhaps have enemies who we are starting to think about this morning, people who have, who have taken a trustful position in our lives and destroyed that trust or abused or neglected. Forgiveness is a real thing that we're called to walk in and perhaps we'll look at that at a later week in this series. 
But trust and forgiveness are two different things. Forgiveness is an attitude of the heart towards the person who has put brokenness upon us. But trust is knowing that you wouldn't allow that person perhaps into the same position that they were in before. Two very different things as we, as we seek what love is. And Jesus says, and the reason why we're drawn to this verse here this morning is that in the next verse, he says, why we do this. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then what does he say? He says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. A pretty big, bold command of Christ, right? Do this, love your enemies, so you can be my son, so you can reflect the father. In this verse, and all the commentaries agree on this, that this isn't a qualification for salvation. Instead, Jesus is talking about what it means to be a son of a father. We know every father, every good father, every wholesome father wants and is, is immensely pleased with his children when he sees reflections of the good parts of himself in those kids. And same as it is with our heavenly father when we reflect the father's glory to the world around us. When Jesus says, do this so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. He's talking about the very series that we're in of how do we become like Christ? How do we reflect his image? How do I become so much a son of the Father that people would have no question that it is Jesus is the one that I am following, that I'm his son. I'm a son of the Father of the Lord in heaven. It's that quest. It's the ever drawing near to Jesus. And it's the thing where in Matthew 7 that Jesus says, you will recognize them by the fruits. The fruit of Jesus, of what he displayed while walking on the earth, should be the same fruit that we display when we're walking on the earth, if we're in that adopted family. And then Matthew 5.45, I don't think Jesus needed to say it at this time. I mean, obviously he did because it's in there. But in my own reckoning, he says, For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and he sends the rain on the just and the unjust. And Jesus here is hinting at what has been God's character from the beginning. We know when Moses was around that God wanted to wipe it out and start again. But he chose mercy. And God chose to start again with uh, with, uh, Noah and his family. Psalm 145 verse 9, it says, The Lord is good to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. There's little to no qualification on that. And we look at it, the, the world around us, right? Like that God actually shows mercy in his common grace upon people who in our own minds least deserve it. Why do these ugly, broken people so often get into these places of power and abuse that power? We would rather it be the other way around. But Jesus in his own teaching is saying, for he makes the sun rise, for he sends the rain, which isn't like rain in BC that we hate. Rain where Jesus was teaching was needed. It was resources. It was life itself to the people who were the enemies of that nation. And we see that as we become sons of our father, that Jesus was displaying that through his own life as well. We know that Jesus was the son of the father. So how did Jesus walk it about? Wes brought up that example of the Canaanite woman 
who was pleading with Jesus to heal her daughter. The Canaanites, if you know anything about them, they had a, quite a significant history with the Jews. We'd argue that that woman uh, uh, in that story from Jesus would have actually should have been Jesus' enemy. She was an enemy of the state. She was an enemy of historical oppression. She represented pagan idolatry and, and an unbelieving world. But Jesus instead had mercy on what his culture of the day would have told him to make an enemy. Jesus made and said, you have great faith in Matthew 15. The woman at the well, I think that was brought up in prayer, but in John 4, we see Jesus encountering a woman at the well. And she was a Samaritan. She was also an enemy of the Jews. She was a cultural enemy. The Canaanite woman, an enemy of God maybe. In Matthew 9, that we see that how Jesus treats another enemy, the very person who wrote the book of Matthew, Matthew himself, he was a tax collector, an enemy of the Jews of that day, and a significant financial burden. They would have called him a thief. They would have called him a liar. They would have claimed that he was stealing from the people that he was supposed to be a part of. Who the people of the day called an enemy, Jesus took in as his disciple. And we see in Luke 7 as well, who comes to Jesus but a centurion soldier to plead the case of a servant in his household. If you were under the oppression of another nation, if another nation was in charge of Canada and we were just supposed to quietly get on with life under their rule and dictatorship, we would want nothing to do with them. But Jesus instead listens to the soldier, listens to the centurion, the enemy that should have been known to him as the oppressor, Jesus had mercy on his household and healed. And in Luke 22, before Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus has an encounter with the high priest and one of his disciples picks up a sword and cuts off the ear of a servant of the high priest. And Jesus responds, no more of this, and he touched his ear and healed him. And in this situation, we see that even someone who is coming to persecute Jesus that very night, Jesus responds with love, with healing. At every turn, when the world presented what should be an enemy to Jesus, Jesus turned it around and said, how do I respond with love? Many were the enemies of Jesus and the Jewish people at that time, but in the interactions of Jesus, we see the other thing is present. And all building to that final example of Jesus, when in Luke 23, verse 34, Jesus cries out, as he's on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they what? For they know not what they do. What beautiful words of someone who is going through the worst agony. Who actually, man, they know exactly, in some ways they know exactly what they're doing. But in, that, in those words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Jesus is going to the Father and pleading their case that very night. To say they don't know what they do. They don't, know, they don't realize that I'm the real son of God. They don't realize the significance of what's going on, uh, on here. And he says, Father, forgive them. And as he spoke that forgiveness, it was our very forgiveness. 
Because although we weren't present, we would have much done the same thing. It's easy to assume we would be one type of Jesus' follower, but we know left up to ourselves without the love of Christ that we would be the opposite. We would be there putting him on that cross for our own political advantages, for our own existing structures. Someone who I was listening to or reading up on this week said, Christianity is the only religion whose God bears the scars of evil. Indeed, the person who spoke these words to us of, of love your enemies knew what that would take hold and take place in his own life. And scars through his hands and through his legs. Jesus knew what it was like. We ask ourselves in these situations as, as we see Jesus surrendering himself before an oppressive enemy, we say, but what about justice? What about that Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 1 where we, you know, we're supposed to go? In 1 Peter 2.23, he says, talking about Jesus, he says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting him, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What that means for us, church, is that when oppression comes, when difficulty comes, when it becomes harder to be a Bible-believing Christian in nations around the world, is that we actually entrust ourselves not to the justice of man, but to the justice of God himself. In Romans 12, we'll look a little deeper later, but in Romans 12, 19, Paul goes back and quotes the Old Testament. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Jesus went to the cross as a silent lamb, but he's coming back to judge. He gives every opportunity for someone to turn and choose himself as Lord of all and repent. But he is coming back for justice, church. But it is not so much our own vengeance. It is not so much our own anger, but God's anger itself. We're not going into it today, but the challenging words of Jesus in the previous section, where he tells us, do not re resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn himself, turn himself to the other also. We're surprised at what Jesus is doing here. And church, as we listen to an over-familiar passage of the Bible, we need to examine who are our enemies here this morning. I'm a type 9 Enneagram. Do you know what that means? It means I don't have any enemies. I'm a peacemaker. I just like peace. I don't want any, to be, anybody to be worried or out of, out of form. But if I examine my heart, if I go deeper than just the surface level of I'm an easy guy to get along with, I realize that there are people around the world who I would hate. Who are our enemies? Sometimes they're enemies of God, like the Canaanite, someone who stands just opposed to every advancement of the gospel. Maybe an enemy of the gospel itself, someone who's just opposed to the truth that we proclaim. Maybe an enemy of the church who wants to oppose restrictions and restraint on what we're doing. And we know that many are the enemies of us, of ourselves, our personal selves. 
Many are perhaps the people who have, who have wronged us or who we have wronged and then got into disagreements. Perhaps even in the room here this morning, God needs to do heart work to join brothers and sisters back towards one another. Who are our enemies? It was easy, perhaps, for the people he was talking to to know who their enemies were. But for us, as we listen to Jesus say these bold words, we need to take account because we all have positions of heart that go the other way. And we know that we are reminded the reason why we enter into this teaching is not only because God said it, because Jesus said it, because it was the very example of how he brought us into his kingdom. What does it say in Romans 5.10? It says that for if while we were still enemies, Jesus speaking to a bunch of New Testament believers reminds them that they were once the very enemy of God himself. Man, I, I came to Christ when I was four. <laughs> Am I an enemy of God? Yeah, I was. And at many times in my life, I have lived opposed to the nature and will of God in my life and other people's life as well. Hurt a tremendous, a tremendous, I don't know, hurt. I mean, we all go through school, we all hurt people. I have been an enemy of God. But it says, for while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Those very words, Father, forgive them. How much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? John Stott says, if he gave himself for his enemies, we must give ourselves for ours. Because it is Christ's example. It's how we were won into the kingdom ourselves. The greatest example of enemy love was God sending his son. In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world, but indeed there was nothing to love about it yet, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And again, summing up the scripture Jesus says this, therefore, in verse 48, Matthew 5, 48, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. <laughs> Some have taken that, that adding on to the end is, see, we can't do it. <laughs> therefore, I can hate my enemy. No, that's not what it means. The word that Jesus is using there is teleos. And yes, it means perfection, like God is perfect, but it also means you know, be mature like God is mature. Be fully mature. Be, be fully at that end point of what it means to reflect your father, of what it means to be sons of God. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It's the desire of this series that Jesus, the prayer of our hearts here this morning is, I want to become like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. One day I'm going to be really like him when I stand face by face, face by face face to face before him. But right now, there's nothing more that the world needs is a cities full of people that bear the image of the Son of God. Do you agree? His hands, his feet. Therefore, be perfect. Therefore, you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Work towards that perfection. Become like my Son. Become like Christ. So what is the application here? 
Many challenges, but what is the application? Again, to remind us, Jesus prescribes two things, and it's simple. It's annoyingly simple so that we can't get caught up in the details of of figuring it out. How many times do we like to do that? It's like, I'd rather figure out a a teaching of Jesus than, than figure it out in application. But we, church, have to figure it out in application because this is not a knowledge word. This is not just we have to something that we have to figure out in our minds, but it's something that we have to apply and do. And it's tremendously difficult to do. Have you ever forgiven an enemy? Remember my mum talking. Well, I was listening to her some years ago before I left home, and she as a young woman was sent, her, all her brothers and siblings were taken away from her parents because it wasn't a good situation. And I realized that that happens frequently now, but back then it wasn't too frequent. And the, the level of what must have been happening, very difficult. But seeing my mother work out a forgiveness of parents who had neglected and abused showed me the true gospel of Jesus Christ. That in the later years of taking care of elderly parents, where if you have any excuse to walk away from them at that point, you would choose that. Because it's tremendously difficult. That actually applied forgiveness and agape love. John Mark Comer says, love, this is a love of the will. It's to will another person's good ahead of yourself. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Love your enemies with such a love that you put them first. It is not an affectionate love. (laughs) How much affection did Jesus have for the Pharisees and the scribes? If you go read those things, you're like, well, Jesus, you're not loving your enemies very much right here. You seem to be shouting at them. Jesus, while Jesus didn't have much affectionate love for the Pharisees in those conversations, he showed love in action time and time again and love in attitude. And this is something we need to get right, church. Someone commentated recently that we're not being asked to bow before Baal in this this season and we're not being asked to go into a fiery, fiery furnace in this season. Tremendous are the persecution of the church historically around the world and, and our nations don't compare to that. But we are being asked to kneel before other things and before other symbols and identities. And Jesus says when we choose to follow his word in that, that actually persecution will come. It says in Second Timothy, or sorry, I'll start with, it says in John 15, verse 20, it says, Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they had kept my word, they will also keep yours. Persecution will come in different forms and in different ways, and ours is little compared to many others around the world. But still in the same way, we are not to revile, we are not to repay, we are not to strike, and we are not to slander. Instead, we are to do what Christ did for us. 2 Timothy 3, 12, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That level of truth doesn't negate 
first or 21st century first world Christians either. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I do want to say it's easier to be a Christian here than in, than in other places, and it takes many different forms, but the reality is true that when you ever read the words of Christ more than even the cultural Christianity at the day was happy with, you experienced persecution in those times. Even in a Christian nation or nations that called themselves Christians, if you really went back to the word of God and challenged people with what it really meant, you would have people fighting and going the opposite direction. And so that's why we need to get this thing of love correct. And again, to remind us, Jesus asks us to pray. And it takes the form of an intercessory prayer. It's not a fluffy prayer. It's not a, Lord, just, just bless them. Actually, we're supposed to go and bless them ourselves. But it's a, Lord, I want them. I want them to be saved. John Stott, in his commentary on this passage, says, Moreover, in, if intercessory prayer is an expression of what love we have, it means to increase our love as well. It is impossible. It is impossible to pray for someone without loving him. Don't you know that to be true, church? It is impossible to pray for someone without loving him. And impossible to go on praying for him without discovering that our love for him grows and matures. The reason why Jesus says, pray for your persecutors, pray for those who persecute you, is because that's the only mechanism that we can achieve the love that he is calling to us to before that. John Stott goes on, we must not therefore wait before praying for an enemy until we feel some kind of love for him in our heart. But we must begin to pray for him before we are conscious of even loving him. And we shall find our love break first into bud and then into blossom. Church, we need to pray. And in many ways, we need to become like Christ. And in many ways, I want to reiterate in this message that Jesus was firm. If you, if you want to figure out who was the person who was the least of a pushover in human history, that was actually Jesus. He was just submitted and servanted to the, to the right things, to the things that God wanted him to call to be submitted to. We see that how that Jesus cleansed the temple in the very place that they, they, they said that we are serving the Lord. Jesus went through and he made, he made a cord, he made a whip of cords and he drove them out of the temple because zeal for his father's house consumed him. Again, when Jesus was most, showed his unhappiness to the world around him, it was actually the people who said that they were following God. People who said that they knew and would instead lay up hard things for people to follow. Jesus wasn't a pushover. He was firm. He was strong. He was mature. But he still took up his cross at the right time for the right reason, letting himself be persecuted because of people. As we turn to the end here, I just want to lay some instruction for, for how we can implement this. And again, going back to Romans 12, so you can perhaps turn there. Romans 12 from verse 14. 
the writer Paul, who as well knew what it was like to be persecuted for a faith in following the real Jesus, said this, echoing Jesus' Matthew 5. He said, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. And then he finishes with this in verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, echoing Proverbs, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil. Again, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Six quick things before we examine ourselves to say who is our enemy. Paul says, bless them. It's actually a physical blessing. It's not a it's not an anointing. You don't not supposed to just throw anointing all at them and bless you. It's not a sneeze or something like that. Bless them. Bless those who persecute you. Secondly, he says, live in harmony and peace with them. And he does add on the phrase, so far as it depends on you. Sometimes we can't live at peace with people because they, they push it too far. So far as it depends on you, do everything just like Jesus to remain at peace with people. He says, befriend the lowly amongst them. Don't look to the proud, look to the meek. In that enemy faction, those who persecute you, those who maybe are associated with them, look for the people who are in need. Look for the people who are at the end of themselves. Look for the people who most are hungry and thirsty, like the woman at the well who's at the end of herself and hungry for a savior, who is ready to receive what Jesus is trying to say. Number four, do not repay evil to them. Again, we are to seek justice. We need police, we need parents, we need courts and governments who, who, who know when to implement this teaching and know when to not implement these teaching. Parents especially, don't be walkovers, pushovers. Number five, I love that this is in here, never be wise in your own sight. In other words, don't gloat at them with wisdom. This Paul is saying, you can be right, but in the way that you apply what is right, you can be tremendously wrong. And when you gloat, we have the truth, right? <laughs> we have the truth. And it, like, we believe that we have the truth, and we, we believe that we have lots of answers to the questions that the world is struggling about with. But Paul is saying, never be wise in your own sight. He's not saying never be wise. He's not saying never give wisdom. He's just saying, do not gloat and be proud in the wisdom that you have. You know that when we apply truth to the world around us, and that's the whole problem with Twitter, right? That's the whole problem with the back and forth, right? Because we take the truth that we have and we apply it with, with pride and knowing that they're wrong and despising them and they get that tone that we hate them and the wisdom can't be received. 
Paul says, never be wise in your own sight. Feed your hungry adversary. Trust in God's plans for justice. And overarchingly, overcome evil with good. The scripture doesn't say overcome evil with good because it's not possible to do that. Jesus teaches and Paul reiterates overcome evil with good because it is possible, church. Because you can actually see victory in your life and the people who call you enemies by doing good. It's not a useless thing. Jesus didn't go to the cross because it was a nice thing to do. It's because it actually wiped away our sin and suffering. It actually brought us into relationship. Jesus is is saying these hard things because he actually wants to go somewhere. He actually wants to do something in our nation. And our nation will not be moved by a bunch of proud Christians applying what is right in hate. Our nation will be moved by applying what is right in love and loving the people who indeed aren't even ready to receive that love, but instead want to repay that truth and love with pain and suffering. That is how the needle is moved. Tim Mackey of speaking of this says, the disciples of Jesus who have made the most deep and significant impact in human history are the people who have chosen this course. If you want to make a deep, lasting impact, it is through this course, through this means, As we finish up, and in our response, and I'll let Paul land the meeting where he wants to here. Loving our enemies forces us to see them as humans. And it forces us to see our enemies as we were before we knew Christ. Romans 5 says, has three reflections of of what we were. At first in verse 6, Paul reminds us, it says, why we were still weak. And then verse 8 reminds us, it says, why we were still sinners. And then verse 10 lays the capstone, says, why we were still enemies, Christ died. So many of our enemies are weak, are sinning, and are enemies of God. But we need to see them as God saw us before we entered in. And we can't advance the gospel to a city that we hate. We cannot. It won't work. We will just attract more Christians from other churches, and instead of seeing the broken come into churches in Nanaimo, we'll just trade through different, church, different churches and go through different houses at times. And churches will rise and fall, but it won't be with the true thing that God wanted to flow out living waters in our city. Isaiah 1 says, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall, be like, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And that is the prayer for the enemies of the church, ourselves, our God, and us personally. Lord, save them like you saved us. And one last scripture here. The first person to ever lay down their lives... I, for, for the gospel. The stoning of Stephen. It says in Acts 7, 58 to 60. and says, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. 
And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who would later become Paul, who would later write most of the New Testament. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then verse 60, he says, And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, just like his Savior, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. The question for us, Saul was present and was an enemy of Stephen and Paul went around, Saul went around doing that, finding Christians to stone and to kill. The question for us is that as we live like Christ did before people who would choose to persecute what we believe, how many souls, how many Pauls exist and will be saved out of the people who are present at those times? We realize that in the example of the stoning of Stephen, that perhaps the greatest evangelists the greatest apologists, the greatest preachers currently exist in those states of sin, brokenness, and enemies of God. And the reason we need to get this teaching right of loving them is because we want to see them in the kingdom. There are many conversations happening in our city today. Even at the school this week, the conversation was opened around you know, how, how to make this place an inclusive place and how to, how to love people who are, who are growing uh, up with different uh, sexual identities and all of this stuff. A tremendously, would you agree, a tremendously, for some people, simple revelation to understand, but to implement that is tremendously, tremendously difficult. As I was thinking last night about this issue and not planning to preach on it or anything like that, and we will in the future, uh, building towards it, but man, I was thinking about how many voices from that very community I'd heard recently, voices of people who had lived lives apart from God, who had lived according to what the world was telling them, and then turned back to Jesus. In the same way, something happens when a soul becomes a Paul. Something happens that's so deep that we look to those words as, as just the, the, the biggest words sometimes written in the New Testament are the ones of, of someone who killed the very Christians and then God captured his heart and turned it for his glory. How many more in our city, church? It's very important we understand what it is to love the broken and hurting because Jesus wants to use them. I have a list here of, yeah, of... Men who are living now celibate lives, who were once sex workers, who were once activists in the other direction, who are now turning back and proclaiming the love of Jesus and what it means to follow his covenant of marriage. And as well, transgender people as well, who had, transgendered for, who had transitioned for, an, about te, for a decade and then came to love and receive Jesus' teaching at a church much like ours, was welcomed in love and then turn back to follow Christ's command. In reading up, I saw an article it was prior to the pandemic, but so I was just researching some of the names on that list, and an article came up by the Washington, Washington Post, and the, the, the title on that post was these radical, Christ, these radical Christians of this movement pose a tremendous danger to the youth of today. That the men and women on that list who have laid down their identities and are turning back to Christ are enemies of the state, are enemies of the culture, 
and are being persecuted for what they believe and the things that they've taken up in Christ. I know that in a room this size, if we look at the statistics, there's many people here this morning who might be struggling with some of those same questions. We would love to chat with you. We would love to talk to you, even though that might be tremendously difficult for you. And in the coming season, we want to teach on, as a church, of what it means to see those same stories perhaps come out in our own city, where people are given the opportunity to receive the love of Christ and turn to him. Not being shaken from the truth that we have learned from God's holy scripture, but applying love to our enemies, that we would see radical voices rise up who believe of what it means to lay down their lives. I know that there's many stories in this room, many family members who we're connected with that make that a difficult teaching to follow. Pray for us as we seek how best to, to, to lay that out before you. And I end with this. Sorry it's been long. I know it's always long. Again, going back to this person, Sinclair Ferguson said this and it just caught my attention. He said, isn't it true It's not the things in the Bible that we find hard to understand that we find difficult. It's the thing that nobody could possibly misunderstand that really expose our grasp on the riches of God's grace and really show whether our lives are being transformed in an ongoing way into the likeness of our Lord, Jesus Christ. This is an easy teaching to understand but it's one that completely exposes how closely we're following Jesus. Let's be like Jesus Church. I'm gonna invite Paul up here just to close us. Thank you. Awesome, thank you, Andy.